The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jones! Bowden! He's got it! England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins! Stokes flashes it away through the covers for four, and England have won the match! Hello, welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. Was that the most bizarre day's cricket? at Lords on the fourth day of the second test since the test match in Jamaica in 1998 England against the West Indies which was abandoned after 10.1 overs for an unreliable pitch I mean today an extraordinary day's cricket let's let's get to the numbers first what's the state of the game Simon well England are 114 for four they need 371 to win so I make that a further 257 to win on the final day with six wickets left and Duckett and Stokes have given England a bit of hope with that partnership before the close Duckett getting away with one question mark well we can discuss that in just a moment but surely Australia are going to go on and win this game if England win this game it will be one of the most remarkable victories from this sort of position ever wouldn't it in, in, in Test Match Cricket yeah and I'm sure the the sponsors uh, of this podcast, the IG Trading and Investments, will be very happy with the, all the sort of talking points around this test match, and, and particularly today, because, I, well, I, like you said, I, I mean, so many sort of extraordinary things happened, and in a way, you know, the, the scorebook doesn't really tell the story at all, does it? Because, I mean, you know, you look at the Australian innings, for instance, which petered out to 279 all out from a starting point of 132 at the start of the day. And, OK, so they scored 140 runs, 150 runs in about 50, 60 overs. So nothing interesting about that, except that after lunch, the score virtually dried up because England bowled a succession of short-pitch deliveries, almost exclusively short-pitch deliveries, to a field of at times seven men on the boundary and why did they do that well Australia couldn't work out how to score they lost at least four wickets to the short ball and because they couldn't work out how to score in a way England controlled the innings and stopped them from extending their lead beyond well 370 in the end but it was a strange kind of surreal period of play which seemed totally anathema to me to England's expressed desire to entertain 
it was anything but entertaining because it was short pitch bowling, batsman ducking out of the way, and the ball goes back to the bowler again. Yeah. Uh, because the bowl, the batsmen were too scared to play any shots in case they got out. There were 40, 49 overs of short pitch bowling. 49 overs of short pitch bowling, and I don't mean you know there was there were you know one short pitch bowling in those 49 overs. There were, it was every over was replete with short pitch bowling. So 49 overs, seven for 116 in those 49 overs. So the short ball tactic worked for England as it worked for Australia in England's first inning. So it worked for England and they were able to restrict Australia. I, you know, if, you, if you'd said to them at the start of the day's play, I was trying to project ahead and think, you know, what would be acceptable for England today? I thought they probably needed seven for 120 or 110, something like that, to really get back in the game. It was ultimately they, they, they took the last eight wickets for 149. So, you know, not too bad. And they, they did okay, but I, I, I don't think, I, like you say, it, it was. I don't think I've ever seen a day's Test cricket like that before. It, it, it was unique, and then you know there were other things that happened in it as well. There was the start catch at the end, and Nathan Lyon yeah. ho hobbling yeah. out to bat. No, I mean in fact, Bumble Lloyd, David Lloyd said, you know, it's, it, this is one of the more bizarre things. We've got a bloke on one leg, Stokes, bowling to a batsman on one leg, <laughs> yeah. Nathan Lyon, yeah. and I, I loved actually. I mean, it was a sort of comedy moment, wasn't it, when the ball was hooked out to the boundary. Start thought he did a six. There was an incredible piece of fielding by the substitute, Ryan Armin, mm. that you normally see in T20, where he dived over the line in front of the grandstand and flicked it back into play. And Stark had wandered up the wicket thinking he had gone for six. Nathan Lyon had wandered up the wicket as well, hobbled up the wicket, and suddenly he realised that it had been fielded, mm. and he had to suddenly hop to the non-strikers end, to, well, to the striker's end. So, I mean, that, that, was, a, that was sort of Keystone Cops you know, Charlie Chaplin almost. Why do you think Nathan Lyon came out at number 11? Did Australia feel they didn't have enough runs? Obviously, yeah. you, go back, you go back to Headingley 2019, they felt that they didn't nail that game down enough, didn't they? They could have scored more. So they, they realised the value of every single run. And Look, they're scared of Stokes. They are still scared. From the 2019, mm -hmm. from the World Cup final, and then obviously the Headingley Test match, which, of course, your uh, commentary on, uh, we hear at the beginning of this podcast. They're, they're, he has a spectre over them, like... Botham did in the, in the 80s. They, they fear him and they know he's lurking in the opposition batting order and anything is possible. So they're giving England not even a, well, they were hoping to give England not even a sniff yeah. and getting as many as possible. I mean, very brave of Nathan Lyon, really. You can just hear probably in the background, by the way, uh, that's the hover cover about to be moved onto the field. Uh, I don't know if there's any rain forecast. I hope not, because it will rather ruin the uh, the final day's play. It normally fires up when it's time for our podcast, yeah, doesn't it? The, the hover cover. I think they do it deliberately. <laughs> anyway, uh, so very brave by Nathan Lyon. I mean, the way I think he got a standing ovation at the end, didn't he? Because he stood there and he swatted away at the bowling and hit one boundary, but wasn't able to really contribute much. Stark, I think, got a few at the other yeah. end. So he added another 15 runs or something. You yeah. never know. That might be crucial in the end. Yeah, they added 15 runs to the last wicket. And I thought Lyon actually struck it really well. Can you remember, you go back to 1984, and that was the the biggest run chase at Lords, 344 for one in, in a test match. Gordon Greenwich for double hundred. You, you must have played against Gordon Greenwich when he batted on one leg and hobbled around. And actually, that was when he was at his, mo that was when he was at his most deadly, wasn't it? Well, partly because he knew he couldn't run, so he had to hit bounds. Well, because they had a runner in those days. Yeah, you did have a runner. And, and, that, and that was a benefit. You know, you, you, you could just stand out there and bat. There were lots of batters who played the game who loved batting. Some people don't bat with a runner, but some love batting with a runner because they didn't have to run their runs. They could just stand there and bat. 
Actually, I'm disappointed in a way you can't have a runner anymore because it always brought more comedy yeah. moments with the, the injured batsman setting off for a run, forgetting he'd got a runner, the runner not sure whether he should run or not, and running up and down by the square leg umpire always caused chaos. Uh, no more is that allowed, so that's a shame. Talking of things that are not allowed, you know, one of the things I didn't like today was that sort of repetitive period where all the England bowlers bowled short of a length. I say short of it, bounces basically. And they were allowed to get away with it because most of them were just overhead height, so they weren't singled wide. You're allowed two bounces and over by the umpires. Some were single wide, but most of them were allowed. And with the fielders back on the leg side, five on the often on the leg side boundary, the batsmen were scared to play a shot. I just wonder whether because well, we're just going to see more of that now, aren't we? Because both teams can see how you can control an innings by doing that, especially if you have a short leg fielder. So it means the batsman can't fend it off and he can't play a shot. So his only option pretty much is to duck, unless he's confident of hitting it for six, which few are. So it really creates a sort of stalemate. And I feel maybe, well, the laws, the laws of cricket, which are governed here at Lords, will be discussed. And maybe they'll look at... I, I don't know, this is a bit of a radical point, but maybe they'll look at uh, restricting the number of leg side boundary fielders you can have in mm. a test match to four instead of five. At times, um, lots of uh, lots of bottles being rattled there. It's been a good day for the, uh, yeah. for the bars, I reckon. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm uh, sure. I mean, is it, Lords? Well, yeah, but I mean, fantastic generally. But there was that period after lunch, which I felt the crowd didn't really enjoy. Yeah. You know, it was a bit of, there was a bit of a murmuring going on as if... We don't really. This is nothing. This is this is sort of boring cricket. It's not cricket. It's not cricket. It's not. Well, well, let's let's deconstruct it for, for a moment. If if it continues, mm. you know, and if it's every Test match is played in the same way between these two sides, then yeah, perhaps there might be some discussions about it. I wonder whether this surface just encouraged bowlers to bowl like that because of its. It's like Joe Root said; it's too paced this this pitch, and you know we've seen some steeping banks, and we've seen a, a few keep low as well. So that encourages bowlers to bang it in short because you don't know which height it's going to come off, do you? As a batter, it's really hard to control. But if you play on a, a really flat pitch and you, you bang it in short, and you can judge the bounce nicely, and perhaps some ground, say Trent Bridge for example, you know, that, that short boundary to, to the new stand, you just be whacking it into the stand the whole time. You would, and if you banged it in short, you might go all around the park, mightn't you? So I know we're not playing at Trent Bridge, but I'm just using that as an example. So I, perhaps we shouldn't use just one test match as our, our gauge, but mm. you're right, if this continues, and you, I mean, you sense that there will be a tactic that's, that's gonna be used by both sides and, and tested out in the rest of the series, but if, and if it continues and it becomes monotonous, then yeah, possibly they might need to think about it. But you need, you know, you need quite a, a wise law change because you don't want to put everything in favour of the batters again, do you? You know, you, you say oh, you can't have that, you, know, you can't have three men on the leg side boundary or whatever. I mean, well, you know, then the batters will just be smacking it over there the whole time. So it's not an easy one. But I think I think you need to wait first to see how it develops. Yeah. Uh, but I agree with you. There were times today when it was it was pretty dull cricket, really. So um, one of the uh, players that we were focusing on uh, yesterday and, and obviously we're interested to see how he went today was Steve Smith. Uh, our sponsor IG has begun a new fund called the IG Net Gains Fund and that is, as I've said on previous podcasts, a, a fund to build new net facilities around the country for public use. Steve Smith, of course, is the ultimate netter. He had a 45-minute net today uh, and he played and missed. How many times did he play and missed, do you know? 
I'm not sure. Once. Once. Yeah, it didn't he feel was, like a lot, no. <laughs> well, no, that was in the nets. Right, right, right in the nets. Right. 45 minutes in the nets, he played and missed. Uh, 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 sorry, 45 minutes in the nets, he played a miss once, mm. and that elicited a, a big cheer from the crowd who were watching. In the match itself, I think he might have played a miss once, but it shows how his dedication to, to the cause uh, you know, reaps rewards in the end because do you know that he has the lowest edge percentage of any batsman in 10 years since he basically started playing test cricket? So he edges fewer balls he, than any other batter? He edges fewer balls than any other batter in world cricket. What, inside and outside edge? Yeah, 10 years, his edge percentage is 46 which is lower than anywhere else. It's amazing what there's in that stat bank these days, isn't it? It's, it's, it has to be, and I talked to Alistair Cook about this a, a bit, it has to be to do with his unreal eyesight, as much as, obviously, his dedication in the net facilities. So I was very interested to see how he went today, and actually, he played immaculately. He hit 12 off and over from Jimmy Anderson. He, I loved it the way, first ball of the day, Ollie Robinson uh, bowled with two leg slips. And he, he, he flicked it between them for four, first ball of the day. I thought that was a, a portent of, of what was to come. But England did get him out with the short ball mm. in the end. He paddled a few shots. He played one sort of bizarre falling sort of tennis smash and fell on it, fell over and tried to hit it down I, I'd the I'd forgotten ground. that one, Yoz. I mean, that was another amazing incident in, in this bizarre and, and then, day. The, the, so let's describe it. He, he backed away to Ollie Robinson as if to try and flat bat it down the pitch sort of with a tennis smash and he fell over doing it but still hit the ball to mid on and didn't get any runs and he's lying down he rehearsed the shot again he played it again as if like this is how I should have played it but he was lying down anyway so it was strange but in the end having tried all those different shots against a short ball he got out he was caught on the deep square leg boundary playing a hook shot so I feel England might have cracked Steve Smith there oh. because, well, not, 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 because, not because he's going he's, he's to get him out first ball or anything, but it controlled his innings. Mm. He was only able to paddle ones and the odd two. He wasn't able to hit boundaries unless he can pull it for six. And he's a bit of a compulsive, I think he's a bit of a compulsive puller and, and sometimes hits it up. So I think maybe that's going to be a solution to how England bowled to him in the, in the remaining tests. So bowl short to Travis Head. Ball short to Steve Smith, ball short to the lot of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, you can only hit the ball in one area. Yeah. If you bowl short, it controls where the batsman can score, largely behind the wicket. So you can see why they did it. Now, uh, I mentioned the IG Net Gains Arena. Now, I mentioned the IG Net Gains Fund. Uh, what that is doing is, is building these net facilities around the country. And the Net Gains Arena, which they've created at Lords and at the other venues, you can face all these brilliant deliveries from uh, other Ashes matches of the past. I'm going to just reflect briefly on a great Ashes phase of the past, which was a famous morning session here in 2005, here at Lords, the first morning of the 2005 series. It was a really kind of iconic moment. It was two bull elephants meeting in a china shop, hammering it out. England bowled first, and the man at the receiving end of it was Justin Langer. Here's his memories of that morning. That was the best hour of cricket I've ever played in my life. It's like being in an AFL or a World Cup rugby final. That first hour, I'll never forget the first ball flew past. Harmison Bolt flew past my nose, and Geraint Jones took it above here. But that's not what I remember. I remember... I think it might have been Ian Bell at bat pad was like walking towards me. It was like the slips were walking towards me. Harmison's about 
two me- a meter away from me, and and I, and I remember Hados coming. He goes, "Mate, be on, be sharp. These guys are on." And England had a real, were really confident leading into that series. They're playing good cricket, but they were on. And then I got second ball, I got hit, and it was so funny because I got this massive lump on my elbow. But it must have just hit a blood vessel or something because I literally did not feel it. But everyone's like, oh, look how tough he is. You know, but I didn't even feel it. It did not even hurt, mate. It did, but it looked good. Like it was a massive blow up. And then I remember that first out, Haydos got hit in the helmet. I, I never saw Matthew Hayden get hit in the helmet. He got hit in the helmet. And just before drinks, Punter got hit under the eye. And he still bears the scar today. He got hit and he's bleeding. And I remember saying a to whoever, and he was our captain. I said, mate, it's not a fucking war. How about checking on him? Like, and England, nothing. Like, they gave us nothing, and it was, wow, these guys are on. So before the break, you heard Justin Langer talking about the Ashes series in 2005 and the start of it. And I think what one of the points was, wasn't it, that this was England really challenging Australia and it felt like challenging them for the first time for goodness how long. Okay, they pinched the odd test match off them since they won in Australia in the 86-87 series, but this was something a bit different, wasn't it? And okay, Australia ended up dominating the game eventually, didn't they, and, and winning the game. But it was just a thought that this might be different this time. And that was, I think, the significance of that. England were aggressive and, and got into Australia. And Australia recognised it, didn't they? Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, they England confronted that fantastic Australia side in 2005 and finished up just winning the series. It was amazing, actually, every match, of course, you'll remember if you were there or watching, that every match went to the wire, but England managed to creep over the line mm. at, at the Oval in the end for a famous Ashes series victory. I've just seen Michael Vaughan, the captain, on that day, uh, walking across the outfield there to probably have a few beers tonight uh, before the last day tomorrow. So. Where do we see this match? Mm. 256 more to win with really only, or 257 is it more to win, mm. with really only Bearstow to come of the main batsman. And the trouble is, this short pitch ploy, Australia haven't really needed it, have they, so far? Because, you know, the brilliant bowling in the last session uh, by first Mitchell Stark, he got rid of Zach Crawley with a slightly lucky caught down the leg side. Some people said he shouldn't have played that uh, that one, but it was it was angling into his pads, reasonable to try and flick it away for runs, and it just swung a bit more down the hill, and he got a little inside edge and was caught behind. Good catch by Alex Harry. What a keeper he is! He's outstanding cricketer, actually, Alex Her- Alex Carey. Then you know a couple of balls later, absolute peach to oh, Ollie Pope. Yeah. I mean, a beautiful delivery, the classic Mitchell start, 90 mile an hour in swinger, took out his middle stump. Well, no batter likes being dismissed. Do they always hate to go back to the dressing room? You know, people have different routines when they go back. I'm, I'm sure a few used to throw their bats. I used to occasionally throw my bat in club cricket no. when, I, when I was out. But you just have to hold your hand up, don't you, and say, what a brilliant delivery. And, and the bowler's allowed to bowl a Jaffa, and he did. And the point being yours, Cummins bowled two superb deliveries as well. So Australia have got two suits, haven't they? They've got two strong suits. They're, they've got good conventional bowling, but they know they can, if that doesn't work, they can also go to the short pitch tactic as well. And it very nearly worked with Ben Duckett uh, just before the close. So that's the, pro- that's the problem for England. I, I, I think it might be done by lunchtime, really. Yeah, and, and I mean, the, the, the skill of Pat Cummins today was on show as well, was it? Again, he didn't need the short ball, although he used it sparingly. First, he, he got rid of 
Root. Root. First he got rid of Joe Root, and Joe Root, I thought, you know, looked good, but he was unsettled by Cummins' very good short ball, the ball before, and then, you know, an excellent, just back of a length with extra bounce, which gloved Root or took the shoulder of the bat and threw the first slip. So, you know, England's top batsman removed by the excellence of Cummins, who then followed it up in the same over with, you know, in a way, a very good ball to Harry Brook. But it was the context, like you said yesterday, about the context of Harry Brook's first innings shot. There was a context to his second innings dismissal because he faced three balls from Cummins. The first one was a little bit short and he, he played it okay. The second ball was full and he drove it on the up back past Cummins for four, sort of in the air, half chance. But then the third ball, I reckon he was already thinking, hmm, I struggled in the first innings when it was short, I'm a bit wary, and he was stuck on the crease and bowled by the classic Pat, Pat Cummins ball, which just held its line from a probably off stump line and just took the top off stump. But, but Harry Brook, another day, might have been able to play that ball. Mm. But because of all the things that had gone on before, him cracked on the helmet, hit on the gloves yesterday and so on. I think he was a little bit tentative yeah. and it just got through him. Yeah. Fantastic well, bowling. Yeah, lo- lovely bowling from Cummins. And, I, I, and that's it. And they've got class bowlers, Australia, and they showed that class. You know, three of those four wickets were excellent deliveries that would have tested you know, lots of top orders and they came up with it. You know, we, Alistair Cook made the point this morning uh, before play, you know, it, the short pitch tactic worked for Australia in the first innings. Would they just go straight to it in the second innings? You know, not, not bothered you know, with conventional bowling, but they went with the conventional bowling and it worked for them. And now they've got the chance, as they need to, as I mentioned earlier, to go short as well if, if, it, if it comes to that. And Ben Duckett escaping just mm. before the close. I, I, uh, you know, I'm, the, I'm like the old football manager. I didn't really see it because I was because <laughs> I was heading round to do the the post day interview. Yeah, I so, saw it so, about so, eighteen times. Okay, so tell me what you saw. So I saw uh, a bouncer to uh, to duck it. Uh, he tried to sort of uppercut it, sort of ramp it over the keeper's head, and he managed to get it to to fine leg rather than over the keeper or to the third man area. He managed to somehow get it to fine leg. Mitchell Stark made very good ground to fine leg, grasped the catch cleanly, but then as he landed, or as he sort of came to a stop, he put his hand on the ground with the ball in it. And it was at that point, it looked as if the ball touched the ground. So he took a clean catch, but then with one hand, he put the ball on the ground. So his hand was pointing down, and he sort of used his hand as a leverage to keep to regain his balance and stop himself. And he claimed that he had his hand under the ball as he landed. But I think he, he, I think the ball touched the ground in the process of regaining his balance and stopping his momentum. And the law says, not only do you have to make sure you, you make a clean catch, but you must also be in control of your bodily movements. And if the ball touches the ground as you're coming to a stop or regaining your balance, then it's not out. Yeah, always important to be in control of your bodily movements. Uh, the, act, the act of making a catch shall start from the time when the ball first comes into contact with the fielder's person and shall end when a fielder obtains complete control over both the ball and his, her own movement. That's the, that's the exact wording of the law. So really, it's a question of whether he, he certainly wasn't in control of his m- movement when he had the ball in his left hand 
and it's a question of whether that ball did touch the ground and I think it did mm. he thinks it, he had his hands under it but mm. I don't think the camera proved that I, th I think he just touched the ground I, I, I was coming back from the TV interviews I saw Alistair Cook and Glenn McGrath making their way over towards the, the BBC point and I, I said to Cook I said I didn't really see it was it was it out what happened and he, he said definitely not out definitely not out I said, Glenn to, McGrath I said of course it was out I said to Glenn well, was it out or not he said definitely out definitely out <laughs> but, uh, and these arguments will run and yeah. run in the same way as you know penalty yeah. trips and all that nobody can really yeah. argue it's impossible to prove yeah. it really and I, I did the post-match interview. I said to, they put up Dan Vittori, who's part of the Australian coaching staff, and he said, well, as you have to actually, really, as a, as a coach, he said, it, the third umpire made that decision, we have to go with it. I mean, the problem is, you know, you obviously have very strong opinions about it. I'm sure they did. The Australians were, you know, asking the standing umpires about the decision that was made. But, you know, if you, get, you can get fined if you say the umpire was wrong. I asked Marcus Scottick about it, and he said... I don't really know the rules, so I wasn't really sure about it, you know, which is, I suppose... It's amazing, actually, yeah. that, I that that is a truism. Mm. A lot of players mm. don't know mm. a lot of the laws, which is a little bit concerning. Now, one just little thought to ponder, by the way. Uh, given we've had a day of short-pitch bowling and a lot of uh, sort of stagnation of play, well, firstly, that's a little bit anathema to England's desire to entertain, because it wasn't very entertaining, although it sort of had an effect in the end. But one other thought, Jimmy Anderson wasn't used, really, in that short-pitched approach. He tried, but he was ineffective. And Anderson, now in two tests, has three for 220 from 77 overs with a bowling average of 75. And I just feel... And he way dropped two the, catches as well. Yeah, and one of them was hard and one was probably fairly straightforward today. I feel that the way, the direction of travel, you know, if they're going to play on these flashish pitches... He's, he, he, as Derek Bringle pointed out the other day on, on the podcast, his outswing is not really working. He, he has had conditions to bowl in because he's had some in this match and he hasn't really looked dangerous. He's looked a bit tired. He hasn't bowled badly at all. He hasn't let anyone down. He's gamely had a go at everything he's asked to do. But I think this could be his last test match. Yeah, well, there's always a possibility when you're aged 40. The only thing I would say is that Anderson's bowled, Jimmy Anderson, he's bowled, you know, well up until this test match hasn't he his, his test figures have not dropped off in the last year and if a batter has two poor games you don't say oh that's it do you you say well we think he's a class cricketer give him another go but I suppose it, it is the age factor isn't it really and, and the conditions that he's been up against Edgerton tough this pitch is it's an odd pitch isn't it really it yeah. hasn't got much pace in it but it's got some uneven bounce yeah. overheads you think oh it's got, it's got to be decent for bowling it hasn't really played out like that and the you know the, the three scores in the match 416 325 279 I mean they're re, you know they're, they're been bowled out cheaply have they no. and I mean look like England might be tonight 40 for four you thought oh hold on a second this could end tonight but you know they managed to get through to the close 114 for four I imagine tomorrow England will get about 220 some of that 230 and Australia win the game by about 130 runs that's how I see it but so it hasn't you know it hasn't been it, 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 there's been something there for the bowlers, but it hasn't been you know, that easy for them in this game. They've had to work damn hard to get their wickets. But I just feel that whatever's in the pitch, the Australians have that five-mile-an-hour advantage. Yeah, definitely. They'll make it happen a bit quicker, yeah. and that's the difference between the teams. Yeah, well, you said that at the start of the series, didn't you? You said 3-1, yeah. you thought Australia had the better bowling attack. And what we might see when we get to Headingley, which is only starting on Thursday, is that England might have to 
you know, revamp their bowling attack just to, just to give a few a break, really, because they've got they you know they've got a lot more overs, uh, and they haven't looked effective enough, really. That's the thing; they haven't been able to get through Australia uh, quickly enough. But it's not been easy for them. But there are, there's Wokes waiting in the wings, Potts waiting in the wings, Mark Wood waiting in the wings. You know, if they're all fit, so they do have some options, and they talked about rotating. So we might well see that. But the problem for England is, it looks to me, unless we see the the miracle of Lords, like we saw the miracle of Headingley, that England will go to Headingley two 0 down, and if they're two 0 down with three to play, well, very very difficult. It doesn't happen, does it? Right, well, anyway, I'm sure the MCC are very pleased that the game has gone to a fifth day because probably be a full house here tomorrow. I'm sure it'll be a great atmosphere. We'll be here. We'll bring you what happens as soon as it's happened. Uh, we'll pray for a good contest and hope that England gets somewhere close at least and salvage something from this match. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you this time tomorrow. Sorry to be so gloomy, but that's how I see it. And I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there seeing it like that as well, that Australia will uh, win the match tomorrow. But... Ben Stokes is still there. Stokes crashes it through the covers for four and England have won the match. Dream on. Podcast Network.